Father, uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Thank you, Father, that he loves us and uh, he loved us enough to die for us. Thank you, Father, that when we put our hand and our trust and our faith in Jesus, that nothing can snatch us away from him. Nothing can snatch us away from you. Father, thank you for this. Father, we confess before you there are many times it feels as if, well, as if we are just too weak, we're too depressed to hold on to your hand. So we thank you that you never let go of us. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit at this time uh, as we read your word. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So, what's up with Jesus saying everyone is God? <laughs> uh, like, what's up with Jesus seeming to say that everyone is God? Uh, I, uh, I can imagine if I was reading this to uh, one of my friends in Starbucks, they'd say, uh, George, I thought you guys were against that. I thought you guys didn't believe that everyone was God. So what is it that, why is it that Jesus is saying this? Um, in fact, uh, George, you know, I was listening to the text as you read, and it seems as if it's a bit lame, like Jesus is a bit lame. Like, on one hand, he says he's God, and then he says everybody is God. So, like, I don't get sort of what's going up. Well, let's just sort of take a time out a moment for a good question. That's a really good question. And, and I have to confess, um, when I read this text for the first time, I mean, I've, I've preached on it before, but when I read this text at first, my heart sank a little bit. I don't know if yours did as well when you came back, where it says, doesn't the Bible say everybody's gods? Or it seems to say something like that. My heart sank a little bit. Um, in fact, I felt a little bit tense when I read it this week, that I was going to speak on this. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a really good thing, just, to, you know, to be honest here, with you, and if, if one of if there are people here uh, who are just either out of curiosity trying to figure out about the Christian faith, or you got dragged here because uh, it's Mother's Day, or I don't know what you just you're just here. Let, let me just tell you, there's lots of times when Christians, lots of times when I read the Bible, and my heart sinks. Just being really honest with you, but here's what I found. Um, as you can see, I'm getting. In fact, I can't say any more that I'm getting gray. Getting is long past. <laughs> I've gone gray. But here's the thing I've really found over the years, is that when I just sit with Jesus' words and with the words of the Bible and ponder them and just sort of calm and quiet my mind and my heart and just ponder them, I always find that they're wise. Like at first they shock me or make me uncomfortable or I wish he'd said something different. And it's not that I kiss my mind goodbye and say, okay, George, you're just going to do this to my brain. <sighs> okay, killed my brain. Yeah, now I'm fine. Big smile. You know, Stepford Wives type of smile. Christians aren't to be the type of Stepford Wives. It just I really found over the years that when I just pause and, and, and ponder what, what is said, that I end up finding out that it's very wise. That's been my experience time and time and time again over many decades. So... Um, so, so you know, um, like what happens when you just sort of pause and, and get over the shock of Jesus appearing to say, you are gods. 
Like if we just sort of pause and get over that shock, well, what happens if we do? Well, let's look. So get your Bible out. We have to look at the text. It always helps to actually get clearer what was said and what wasn't said and what the context is. So uh, we're looking at John chapter 10, and we're beginning at verse 22. And if you're a guest here this morning, uh, one of the things we do here most of the time on Sunday mornings is we go through books of the Bible, uh, because uh, the Bible is made up of 39 books written before Jesus and 27 books after Jesus, and they're written as books. So we study them as books. We begin at the beginning, go to the end. Uh, that way you, nobody can say that I'm sort of leaving out the, the awkward parts or the bad parts, we just, and we learn how to read and pray together by by looking at the text together. And so we're almost halfway through, and what we call now the Gospel of John was originally written as uh, one of the four um, biographies of Jesus uh, based on eyewitness account. And uh, John himself is an eyewitness and an earwitness to Jesus, and he wrote this biography of Jesus after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're about just almost up to the halfway mark of going through the Gospel, and here's how it goes. Um, it goes like this, verse 22. At, the t- at that time, that's the time that's about to happen right now when Jesus was still alive, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Uh, and just pause there for a second. Uh, we know it by a different name. Hanukkah. It was Hanukkah. <laughs> uh, Hanukkah isn't uh, something which is talked about in the Old Testament. It's based on something that happened in the mid-2nd century B.C. Uh, when there was a, 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 the Jewish uh, people were able to kick uh, the Syrians, I think it up, but just like today, right? The Syrians were in Jerusalem, or Syrians would like to be in, in Jerusalem right now, as would the Iranians and, and, and lots of others. But they, they had defiled the temple, and there'd been a Jewish leader who'd kicked them out and uh, cleansed the temple from the pagan worship and idol worship and sac- idol sacrifices that had gone on. And it's, uh, and, and it's Hanukkah. So that, that's what it was. They just call it a different thing. Here, this is the original name. We now call it Hanukkah, which is closer to the Hebrew. Read that again, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jewish leaders gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." Now, just sort of pause there. I've, I've gone, that's a bit of, you can see if my Bible has red letters when Jesus speaks, so you can see that's sort of the end of his answer. And it might be puzzling to some of you, why is it they just ask, these guys ask Jesus to give them a plain answer, he doesn't give them a plain answer. Like, what's up with that? Like, if, if you come to the service before, uh, one of the things you'll hear me say time and time again is that Jesus always loves honest questions. Like, if you have questions, and they're honest questions, like, bring them to Jesus and bring them to his people. And Christians should never be known as a people who are afraid of good, honest questions. If we're afraid of a good, honest question, we're not following Jesus. He was always comfortable with them. But why is this not going on here? They ask him to speak plainly, and he doesn't do it. Well, it's a little bit of a subtle thing, and you have to look at it a little bit 
closely and just sort of pause. Once again, just if you remember as a general rule that Jesus loves honest questions. But most of the time, much of the time, especially in John's gospel, the questions aren't honest questions. You know what that's like, right? You know when you, you get a question from somebody, you know, maybe it was back when you were in school, maybe it's from your boss or from a coworker. They ask you a question, it's not a question. They know the answer. They're trying to embarrass you in front of people or put you down or make you look stupid, <laughs> right? Those are dishonest questions, and that's what's going on here. First of all, what happens is they encircle him. His enemies encircle him <laughs> all around him. And while they're all around him, they ask him this question. And Jesus, from his answer, what he says right off the bat to them is he basically says to them, listen, you guys aren't asking me an honest question because you don't believe. Like, you don't believe. Like, you, you, you know that no matter what I say to you, you're not going to believe it. Like, your minds are closed. You're closed to evidence. You're closed to conversation. Here you are encircling me. Which is, as we all know, just imagine, it would, that's a type of intimidation, right? Imagine if you're in your office and all of a sudden all of your coworkers, and you know it's not your birthday, and their expressions aren't friendly and open, and they all encircle you and ask you a question. That's intimidating. It's a specifically intimidating act. And so he said, here you are, you're intimidating me. In effect, that's what's going on. And he said from the beginning of his answers, I know you don't believe anything I'm going to say. So what he does is, since you're not going to believe anything I want to say, he's going to get to the heart of the issue to try to help bring home to them their problem, to see if it maybe sort of checks them a tiny bit. Because Jesus always goes to the heart, and by the heart, once again, we don't mean the emotions. He goes to the command center of our lives. What's really working at the command center of who we are? And he says, if you look at it now, verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. He basically said he was the Messiah several times in earlier chapters. But here's what he goes to. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Now, what does the word works here mean? Works means miracles. That's what this means. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the time he worked in the soup kitchen. They, they didn't have them back then. He's talking about miracles. And, and one of the things which characterizes John's gospel is that... Um, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, three of the, other, the three other ancient biographies of Jesus based on eyewitness accounts and testimony, they have lots of miracles. But John chose to only have a small number of miracles. It's as if he said to himself, I'm just going to pick a small number of miracles. I'm going to go into way more detail about each one of the miracles. I'm going to go into details to help emphasize that they really happened in history and I'm going to go into detail with miracles to show that they were received often with great skepticism and inquiry. And so if you were to go back after this and you were to read John's gospel up until this, you'll see that there was several important... And the other thing is, what, what, he means, what Jesus means here by miracles isn't the way we usually use the word miracle. We usually use the miracle in one of two ways, as something really random or as a way to insult somebody. So some of you this morning might have said, if you said, it's a miracle, my son remembered it was Mother's Day. Well, that's a put-down, right? <laughs> my son is so stupid, so self-centered, so narcissistic, I can't believe he actually remembered it's Mother's Day. <laughs> right? We often use it as an insult, right? It's a miracle my boss gave me a compliment, we say over the coffee hour. She never gives me compliments. 
Or we use it as something really random. It's a miracle I won the lottery. Just random. I mean, eventually somebody's going to win the lottery. It just happens, right? It's just sort of random. But Jesus means miracle in, 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 a, in the old sense of the word here. Works is referring to miracles in the old sense, which means something that only God could do. Something that nature would never do by itself. Something that wouldn't come up even if it was random. It's just something that literally could not happen by cause and effect by randomness. And, and up until now, uh, there are six miracles that John records, and every one of them are very significant. They're things that we can think about, and they're things that in some ways they begin as, as very private, but they quickly become public, and they're all talked about in such a way that every time you realize it could not be done by anybody other than God, and it illustrates something about the God really does exist. The first one is, is that Jesus turns water into wine. And, uh, and I, you know, g- generally speaking, religious people would turn wine into water because religion likes to take the joy out of life. <laughs> but Jesus does the opposite. He turns wine, water into wine. And it's very clear if you read the miracle that it's something that, you know, they're big stone jars. Jesus never touches it. Uh, it wasn't something they expected. And the same God who's created wine and water, only a God who's created all things can act in his own created order and now turn water into wine. And then the second miracle, that's in chapter 2, the second miracle happens in chapter four, uh, chapter 3. And in this particular case, there's a high official in, in Pilate's government, or, or Herod's government, I think it is. can't remember if it's Pilate or Herod. It doesn't really matter to the story. A high official... And uh, he comes and asks Jesus to heal his son who's on the point of death. And uh, he's, he's walked 20, basically a day to come to see Jesus. And Jesus just says, your son is healed. He says it like this. And, uh, and he actually is healed. Even though they're miles and miles away, a day's walk, a day's walk, and Jesus heals the man's son from a distance. That's the second miracle. And it, it helps to show, if the first miracle helps to show that God is a source of joy and celebration, and the second one helps to reveal that God is the God of life. He's not the God of death. He's the God of life. He's the God of health. To draw close to God in John 2 is to come close to joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. To come closer and closer to God is to come closer and closer to life. It's to come closer and closer to health. And then the third miracle is a really, really interesting miracle. It's in John chapter 5. And, and by the way, these first two miracles... They would have started to cause a bit of a public stir. They happened in a small community of around 2,000 people. But it would have caused a stir in that neighborhood. And the third miracle would have caused a bigger stir because it was in a far more public place right in Jerusalem. In this place, in this case, there was a very, very grumpy man who'd been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus heals him. He heals him so completely and utterly that he's able to pick up his mat and walk. And this would have begun to be from far more common. In fact, in this particular case, we know for, an, for a fact that the, the experts, the elite, the opinion makers, they know that a miracle has happened because they, they begin to question the man. And it's in fact at that point, believe it or not, that religion and spirituality and educated opinion and political opinion turns on Jesus and they start to realize that he's a threat to their order. And then the fourth miracle that Jesus performs is the most public of all of his miracles until the final one, which is going to take place in chapter 20, in, uh, in, uh, which we won't look at for quite a while. And that's where Jesus, 
the, the fourth miracle is Jesus feeding 5,000 men, which means that he's feeding more than 5,000 people. It might be 10, it might be 15, it might be 20, it might be 25, it might be 30,000 people, we don't know. And from five loaves and two fishes, with them all in a public place where they'd know there's not some big wagons and wagons and wagons of food that Jesus has just brought out, that he just literally takes the basket and breaks the pieces into another basket and breaks them and breaks them and breaks them and it just keeps going and going and going and going and then the disciples are taking it and breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and it never comes to an end. And 5,000 men, maybe as much as 20,000, 25, 30,000 people all at one time witness Jesus performing a miracle. Something that only God can do. He created matter out of nothing. He created matter out of nothing in front of their eyes. And then the next miracle which Jesus, uh, which John talks about is Jesus walking on water in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's not a shoal, it's in the middle. He walks on the water during a storm. And this miracle is told in all of the Gospels and it shows it's actually a set of Gospels, but John just emphasizes one as- that this one, all of them emphasize this one primary fact And that was only seen by the people in the boat, but it actually was known of by many, many thousands of people because if you read the story, they know that it's uh, some type of miracle must have happened for Jesus to get to point A to point B, and they couldn't understand how he did it. And the apostles would have eventually told them. And then the final miracle, which has been recorded up until this point in time, is uh, is the miracle of, um, of Jesus healing a man who was blind from birth. This isn't some psychosomatic healing, you know, some type of a placebo effect that brought some type of, oh, I guess I can now see or something like that. It's not like if you watch Band of Brothers, great, great, great series, you know, the guy who has that stress from battle and he can't see. You're not sure if he's just trying to get out of fighting or what happened. He can see, he can't see. Not like that. This man has been blind from birth. The miracle is told in great detail. And in fact, it's actually used to illustrate something because Jesus makes this remarkable claim that he is the light of the world. And frankly, any charlatan, any kook, any crazy guy could make some type of claim. Any narcissist could make some type of claim, I'm the light of the world. Yeah, yeah, show me. Well, how does Jesus demonstrate that he's the light of the world? By doing a remarkable miracle of healing a man who was blind from birth so that the man could see. And Jesus says to these guys, listen, I've now done... More than that, but in this, if you've just been reading along, you guys know, and, and the reason this was also going to be a very public miracle is because right where people were going into the temple every day for years and years and years, the same guy sat there begging. And now this guy who had sat there begging for years and years and years and years, and they knew that he couldn't see, that he'd never been able to see, and now he could see. Jesus had done a remarkable miracle. He had done something only God could do. And so Jesus says, I have done these six things that only God can do, and you stand here encircling me, and you claim to be interested in my answer to a question? Like, you're not. Are you? You're not. So you see, Jesus isn't ducking the question. And he's doing, he has done things that only God could do. Now here's the thing which is so remarkable about this story. It's something you have to keep true, through, keep, keep track of it all the way through. Jesus 
I mean, here, you know, uh, you know, if you were here a few weeks ago and I was talking about the miracle of the man who was healed blind from birth, you'll, you'll know that modern science has now taught us that there is at least a double miracle there because there not only had to be a miracle of the whatever it was that stopped him from seeing, there had to be a, there had to be a healing of the mind because the mind has to learn to see. Babies learn to see. They learn to see. We just take it for granted. You can see, but you have to learn to see. And so what happened in that miracle is, amongst other things, is that not only whatever it was that was missing, God, Jesus created in the man, inside the man, and whatever was blocking sight was, was taken out of the man. And Jesus does, in a sense, that double miracle, but he does this third thing where he actually heals the man's mind. So that means that Jesus could, right that second, just like that, he could make every single one of the people all around him go, oh yeah, now I believe in you. He had that power. But he never uses it because, you see, freedom matters to God. Your freedom and mine matters to Jesus. He wants you, he wants me to freely choose him. And that's because it's not just a myth that God is love. Like... Earlier on, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it's of the very nature of love that love must be free. If one of you, when you were still single if, uh, and you, uh, you, you started talking to another person, it's different nowadays, I think. I, I, when, I, when I, like I'm, I'm really old, Back in my day, I didn't discuss with Louise for a while whether or not we might get married. And then after all the details were worked out, I popped the question. I just popped the question. I was hoping she'd say yes. I was pretty sure she'd say yes. And when I popped the question, there was this long pause. And then as you maybe you've heard, she said, you're supposed to be on your knees. (laughs) And um, we were both like left-wing, hippie, radical, feminist types, so I wasn't sure what she was telling me to do. I mean, I knew the language was, you're supposed to be on your knees. I could follow it. I just wasn't sure. But then I thought to myself, am I going to... Uh, this is true. Am I going to do this? She's going to laugh at me? True confession. But then I thought to myself, that was the devil, right? And then I thought to myself, I really want her to say Yes. Like, I really wanted her to marry me. So I got down on my knees. I asked her again, long pause, and then she said yes. And now, of course, we've been married a long time. But, you know, um, here, here's the point. If afterwards, Louise discovered that her dad offered me five million bucks to pop the question, she'd break off with me in a moment. Because my request wasn't free and out of love. And Jesus could have just done like that and, and worked in each of those men's minds to make them believe and accept, but he doesn't do it. Why? Because freedom matters to God. Because freedom is essential to love, and love matters to God because God is love. So Jesus doesn't duck the question. He just really says, uh, you know, listen, uh, Look at what I've done. 
and you're still asking me that question. Now, some of you might say, whoa, 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 George, I was listening to that, and you say freedom matters to God, but doesn't Jesus say that you, the reason you don't believe is because you're my sheep? Like, isn't that one of those things that you've got to be sheep to believe? And so, you know, God makes you a sheep, and then you believe? Like, isn't that tech? No, 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 look at the, look at look, look. What, what Jesus is saying here, in fact, the whole reason that Jesus does this conversation with them is he's basically saying, you know, one of the characteristics of people who are, who are mine, because in the last week we looked in the earlier part, he describes his followers as a, sh- a flock of sheep, right? And, uh, and he says, one of the characteristics of people who are my sheep is they believe me. They listen to my voice and they believe me and they follow me. You obviously aren't. But he doesn't say this so they can go away and say, oh, well, dang, I'm not a sheep. I guess I can't believe. It's all God's fault. No. He confronts their heart so they might say, you know, Jesus, you're right. I don't know why my heart is so close to your miracles. Like, I, don't, I don't know why I just won't believe my eyes. Can you have mercy on me? That's what he wants. That's what he wants. But then, then you say, um, okay, yeah, sorry. Now, I don't know if you noticed at the end of the part that I read that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And um, this is a very, 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 very big claim. And if you're a guest here this morning, the thing that this claim means is that the way that most people think in Canada, most people in Canada think about Jesus just can't possibly be true. It's wrong. Like, look, look again here at verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, even in English, it's very powerful, but it might be that in English you might think, okay, I and the Father are like at one with each other. We're like, you know, like a husband and wife can be sort of like one or two friends can think as one. But in the original language, it's actually very, very, very clear because in the original language, it can either be a, it, it can be written in such a way that it could potentially mean that we just have one mind or one heart or one will, but it actually says one thing. My father and I are one thing. We are one substance. It's very, very, very powerful language, which they, as we'll see in a moment, the hearers immediately understand and respond. Look at, in fact, look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him because of it. Now, here's the thing about this claim. And this is why no matter what Canadian, you know, most Canadians just say that Jesus is a good religious teacher, he's a, he's a good man. But if it, Jesus says this, it means he's either insane or he's an abuser. He's a manipulative person who wants to abuse us. That's what that text means, unless it's true. Um, now, let me tell you, and you have to take this the right way, I've been in and out of psychiatric institutions ever since I was 18. <laughs> I mean, I've had lots of friends in them, and I've gone to visit, and then I've been a pastor and gone to visit. I've had very, very close contact, almost unbroken with people who are mentally ill ever since I was 18 years of age. And it's not uncommon for mentally ill people, as we all know, to hear voices, to make really, really grandiose claims. And let me tell you, if Jesus makes a claim like this and he really believes it, he's insane. 
But here's the problem. I challenge any one of, the, any one of you to read the four biographies of Jesus, and in no way do any of them, in none of them, does Jesus sound like he's insane. We're in an urban church. We all know what insane people are like. I mean, just go wandering down Rideau Street afterwards. You're going to meet some, you know, some mentally ill people. We all know what they're like, and Jesus in no way seems mentally ill. But here's the other thing. Remember I was telling you about the Bhagwan, that, uh, that uh, Indian guru. It's uh, the Wild Wild West, uh, sort of an interesting uh, uh, documentary on, on Netflix. You know, and, and here he is making all of his people. He claims that he's a god-man, and uh, he claims he's a god-man, and all these people, they, they work all these hours for no pay whatsoever, just basically having their basic needs met. And he's driving around in Rolls Royce after Rolls Royce after Rolls Royce. 95 Rolls Royces by the time he left Oregon. 95 Rolls Royces. Now, you know what? Sorry, that's a manipulative, manipulative abuser, isn't it? He makes a grandiose claim about himself. He does mumbo-jumbo, tells them to do all this sort of abusive stuff to themselves and to others, all the while just give me the money, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, and give me, give me, give me, and he gets to live in a nice house and have all these Rolls Royces, and give me, give me, give me, give me. It's a manipulative abuser, right? That's what we call it, an abuser. So if Jesus makes a claim that I and God are of the same substance, we, I, God is... I am perfectly God and says that with a straight face and if he believes in it and it's not true, he's insane. If he knows it's not true and he says it, he only can be doing it to manipulate and to abuse. But here's the thing. I challenge you to read the four biographies of Jesus and what you see is that he never abuses anyone. Far from it. His entire life is self-giving. He heals. He takes no payment. And when it comes time for him to die, he has no place to lay his head, virtually no possessions of any value except one simple thing. And nothing in his life is abusive. He is abused, but does not abuse. So the way the average Canadian thinks about Jesus, you have to choose. What you can't tell me is that he's a good man. And what you can't tell me is that he was kind. And what you can't tell me is that you wish that more Christians were like him because he's just so loving and kind. No, you listen to him. He's either insane or a manipulative abuser or he's God. Or he's God. Now, some of you might say, whoa, 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 George. I'm going to go with confused there's a third category. Because doesn't he just say everybody's God? Doesn't he say everybody's God? Well, let's look. Read verse 30 again. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. The Jewish leaders, verse 31, picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works. In other words, I've done at least these six miracles from the Father. For which of these miracles are you going to stone me? The Jewish leaders answered in verse 33, it is not for a good work. In other words, it's not for your miracles that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them. Now here's the troublesome bit. Is it not written in your law? In other words, 
in this particular case, it means the Bible, because sometimes the old, what we now would call the Old Testament, or our Jewish friends would call the Tanakh. Is it not written in, in the Tanakh, I said you were gods? If God, he, called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, in other words, miracles, then do not believe me. But if I do them, miracles, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, believe the miracles, follow the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So what's going on here? What's going on here is very simply, it's an argument from lesser to greater. It's an argument for, from lesser to greater. It would be as if I said, if you see a couple and the, the husband and the wife really love each other, and it just looks like a really wonderful relationship, if, 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 you, if, if you can see how Bob loves Sally and Sally loves Bob, imagine how much God loves you. If you, if you've met somebody and if you've met Sally and she's just been so kind and poured her life into you, the lesser, just imagine how much God, whom you can't see, loves you and has poured out his life for you. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look where he quotes it from. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 82, because he's quoting Psalm 82. Psalm chapter 82. That's where Jesus is quoting from. And he quotes them. He's going to use an argument from the lesser to the greater. And here's the lesser. It's a, sort of an ironic psalm that's warning of judgment. And it goes like this. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. And here, as we're going to see, gods on one level could at first just be taken to mean the idols of the nations all around them. He's sitting amongst the idols. And it also means... Because in the ancient world, many people thought they were like God. or act, And it can also just mean in our day and age, as we're going to see in a moment, people who think they're God in terms of they act like God. Your boss that abuses you. The high school teacher that just was completely and utterly insufferable with you. Maybe a dad or a mom who were just terrible to you when you were growing up. So the psalm goes like this. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. And then what does he say to them? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? First, he calls them gods. <laughs> then he says, how come you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then he says to them, listen, give justice to the weak. Verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. Now he's talking about these people who act as if they're gods. And he says, you have no knowledge. They're oppressing. They're showing no kindness. They're just oppressing, doing everything wrong and evil. In other words, he's saying they're not gods, right? And it gets even clearer, verse 6, which is the verse that Jesus actually quotes. I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So here's what's going on in the argument. You can see very clearly they're not gods. 
You can see very clearly they're mortal. They're all going to die. And he's referring to whether he's referring to some type of... He's referring to human beings, at least in part of this, very clearly. And he says very clearly, you're going to die. You do wrong. You're not God. But he calls them like God. Why? Because in a very, in a very real sense, um, human beings who are in positions of power and authority, in many ways, they act like little gods. We have to give... I mean, I'm one, I mean I'll use myself, so it doesn't sound like I'm just talking about other people. Sometimes I have to discipline people. I hate it. I'm sleepless for a week. (laughs) And I'm sleepless for a week afterwards. But sometimes you have to discipline people. Sometimes, you know, there's been times in this church, there's been accusations that when people have been sharing the peace, a guy will hug a girl and they hug them a little bit too long and not the right way and I have to have a word with him. And I am sleepless. Or there's been some accusations about maybe there's a person not quite hanging around children the way they should be. Or a person causing slander or trouble. Or a staff person who's just not acting right. This is years ago, not now. And I've had to discipline them. In a sense, I'm acting like God, aren't I? I'm judging them. So here's what Jesus is saying. If a mere human being sometimes acts like God, and the Bible says you're acting like God, That's the lesser thing. Well, what about me? One moment. I just made, just a a year ago, I made matter out of nothing. I turned water into wine. I created an optic nerve in a man's head by my will. And if the Bible can talk on one hand how a human being is like a God, why is it wrong for me, God, the Son of God, sent by the Father into the world to say that I am God? And he says the scripture cannot be broken. What he's really saying here is he's challenged them to understand the argument from lesser to greater, but he's also telling us, and this is why it's this is really important, this is very practical for those of us who are Christians. Jesus says one phrase in Scripture properly understood and used, right? One phrase, just one, properly understood and used, is enough to hang a whole doctrine on. It's strong enough to support the greatest and deepest truth. Andrew, could you put up the first point, please? As Jesus trusted the Bible, so will I. As Jesus trusted the Bible, so will I. The wording is partially influenced by a Hillsong United song that I like called So Will I. But, you know, if Jesus has such a view of the Bible, so will I. So will I. So should you. Now, here's the thing, just to try to wrap up the whole sermon. Um, it's very, look, look again at verse, um, look again at the thing that they say to Jesus in verse 33. They're going to stone him, and Jesus answered them, it is not for, and the, Jews, the Jewish leaders say in verse 33, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Now you see, they've completely and utterly, because they refuse to understand the miracles, uh, they've completely and under, misunderstood the whole problem. In fact, they ask the wrong question, because what the wrong, you know what the right question should be? What on earth are you doing here? 
what on earth? You are God, the Son of God. Like, what on earth are you doing here? Why on earth would you make yourself man? Like, look at the disease. Look at the, look at the dirt. Look at the weakness. What on earth are you doing here? I, I've only been bumped up to business class or first class on a plane a couple of times in my life. Twice it's been to Vancouver. It is so nice. <laughs> if you folks, if any of you want to start donating points so every time I fly I can go into first class, I will accept it. No, just, that's not a, don't, don't give it to me. After I've said that, don't give it to me. I don't want it. But here's the thing. I'm a very, very hard-hearted man. I got up. One of you folks gives me points. I'm in business class all the way to Vancouver, five and a half hours, nice wide chair, leg room, good food, drinks, whoa. And then somebody, as they're going through, said, by the way, I have the last seat in the plane, you know the one right by the bathrooms where the seat doesn't go back? Would you trade with me? Because you're a pastor? Oh. Well, you would see me squirm trying to think of how it is that they know that I'm a pastor and I'm not going to give up my seat for them, but I won't. And that's just from business class to a seat on a plane. The right thing for them to say to Jesus is, what on earth are you doing here? What on earth are you doing here? If you could put up the final point, Andrew. Here's the thing. There is no pit that we are in that Jesus hasn't gone lower to come from beneath you and to lift you up. Are you a failure? He has gone lower. Are you despondent? He has gone lower. Are you sick? He has gone lower. Are you depressed? He has gone lower. Are you fearful? He has gone lower. He left heaven above, and all the glory and the splendor and remaining fully God took into himself our human nature perfectly and lived amongst us. He was a cell attached to his mother's womb. How low, but even lower. He ends up on a cross. He ends up naked, whipped, abandoned, publicly ashamed, publicly humiliated, biblically speaking, completely and utterly cursed, Obviously a complete and utter failure. All of the people who had conspired against him had beaten him. He is dying up there and then he descends into death and he explains that he descends into death bearing my sin and yours, my curse and yours, my shame and yours, my failure and yours, my death and yours, my sin and yours. He bears it all and goes right down to the depths of death. There is no pit so low that he has not gone lower to pick you up. And we can see it so beautifully expressed in verse 26 and 27, 27 and 28, which is the memory verse for this week. Look at it again. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He descended into death that you may receive eternal life. He descended into doom, that you may not perish. He descended to hostile powers, that you may never be in their clutches. 
As Savior and Lord, He calls you by name to follow Him day by day and to receive the privileges He bestows. In verse 28, uh, verse 28, when it says, I give them eternal life, that's the present tense. If you hear the voice of Jesus and you say, Jesus, be my Savior and Lord, your present possession is eternal life. Your present possession is eternal life. The world might think you're ugly. The world might think you're a failure. The world might think you are poor. The world might think you are of no use. The world might think you are completely and utterly unimportant, but if you put your hand in the hand of Jesus, if you hear his voice and respond to him, eternal life, the life of God, is your present possession. He descended into death that you may receive eternal life. He descended into doom that you may not perish. He descended to hostile powers. Why does he have to descend to hostile powers? Because no matter how the hostile, whether they're individuals or institutions, whether it is the media or the university, whether it is the UN or, or the power of the United States or China or Russia or Iran or Saudi Arabia, they are so low. God is so high. They can't do anything against him. He has to descend. They, they might think they're getting at God or doing something. No. No, but hostile powers, they can consume and clutch and grab and, 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 and belittle and diminish us. And, and Jesus descends. He descended to hostile powers that you may not be in their clutches. And as Savior and Lord, he calls you by name to walk with you day by day as you follow him, to walk with him day by day and to receive the privileges he bestows, to receive eternal life, to receive that you will never perish, to receive that no one will snatch you out of his hand. Please stand. Friend, I just want to encourage you, if you are here this morning and you've been sort of on a bit of a journey or maybe just uh, low, call out to Jesus. He will not say no to you. He will take you. He will wrap his arms around you. He will take you as his own. He will make you his sheep. And he will walk with you day by day. He will turn none of you away. None of you is so much, nobody here is so much of a failure or so depressed or so broken that he will not take you. And no one here is so wise and powerful and full of himself or herself that you do not need Jesus. <laughs> no one. So I just urge you as I pray this closing prayer just to call out, call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, be my Savior and my Lord. Jesus, be my Savior and my Lord. I turn to you. Take me. Just Jesus, be my Savior and my Lord. Let's pray. Father, I confess before you, we confess before you that sometime you feel so distant. But we confess before you that you are never distant, Father. You never are distant. We thank you, Jesus, that there is no pit so low that you did not go lower still to pick us up from underneath and raise us up, that you came down to raise us up. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus. We came, give you thanks and praise that he came to descend, to raise us up, to make us yours forever. Father, make us disciples of Jesus who are gripped 
by this good news of your power working in us to give us eternal life and that protection and no perishing. Father, we thank you for the good news of what Jesus has done, a news that comes with power. Grip us with the gospel. Grip us with this story that we might live free and for your glory and the good of people. And all this we ask and God's people all sing together. Amen.